0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: The IMS boss survived data rigging allegations to fight another day. And what's up with French supermarket M&A? Tune in to find out now. Welcome to the Views Room. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, a financial commentary arm of Reuters News, coming to you this week from Switzerland. International Monetary Fund boss Kristalina Georgieva had a pretty busy week. Ahead of the annual meeting of the World Bank and the multilateral lender she leads in Washington, Georgieva's job was under fire. At issue is whether when she worked at the World Bank in 2017, she pressured staff to alter data to favor China's status in the annual doing business report. In the end, she managed to ride out data rigging charges, but now she's got a lot to prove. I talked to our global economics editor Swaha Patnaik to hear how Georgieva can remake her legacy and reform the institution itself. After that, Peter Thal larsen and Amy Donelan discussed developments at both ends of European retailing. In France, supermarket chain Carrefour is facing a shrinking pool of potential merger partners after rejecting a possible tie-up with domestic rival Auchan, and after a previous approach from Canada's Couchtard was nixed by Emmanuel Macron's government. They also chew over the spectacular stock market collapse of one-time British e-commerce star THG. Give a listen. Swaha, you and I should be in Washington right now this week for the IMF World Bank meetings, but instead uh, you're in London, I'm in Zurich. But we're certainly writing a lot about the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, Let's start with where it began. I mean, really, Sunday and Monday, we were on a vigil to to learn whether or not Kristalina Georgieva, the IMF uh, chief, was gonna keep her job. In the end, she did. Um, Let's just go back, what was going on?
2: Well, this is a saga that actually predates her joining the IMF. It, It has to do with her time when she was chief executive at the World Bank. And there were allegations that she may have pressured World Bank staff to improve China's ratings in this sort of flagship doing business report, which is since now, after all, this scandal has actually been cancelled. Um, so there have been a long series of meetings because she's at the top of a very important institution that does a lot around the world to help developing countries to mobilise financing. And this was a really important issue for the shareholders and the IMF. And there were many meetings about what to do. And her job did seem in balance at one point.
1: Yeah, but in the end, they came out with a uh, with a statement that said that that, that, that showed confidence in her. We've seen these from lots of private companies when they come out and show, express their confidence. It Doesn't always um, exude confidence, but uh, the way you you wrote about this is okay. She's she's kept her job, but now it's all about uh, securing her legacy. What is your perspective on, on really what she needs to do to secure a legacy that goes beyond this? Uh, scandal or this brouhaha on the doing business report?
2: Absolutely. I mean, her first and most important job will be to rebuild trust in the institutions. Uh, The World Bank is doing its own bit. She's at the head of the IMF. She needs to build trust that these institutions are independent from country sort of pressure, individual country pressure, she will also need to show that she is independent and free from this sort of bias or pressure, whatever you want to call it. Whether she was in the past or not is not really the point. Perception counts for a lot in these sort of political settings. That's her first and most pressing challenge. The bigger ones, and this is somebody who's had a long career, has an eye and a legacy, perhaps, will be to do things that make this fade into the distant memory. There's some very specific things that she should or could do. The first is build on the work she's done in uh, the speedy response that the IMF had to the pandemic by mobilizing the financing for something that's sort of called a green and inclusive recovery, if you like. So green because everybody is having to confront the climate change issues and how to transition and decarbonize. And inclusive because both because there's a lot of inequality uh, after the pandemic has become exacerbated, so you need to deal with that, but also related to climate change to ensure that the burden of decarbonization doesn't disproportionately fall on those who are already poorest and struggling.
3: Yeah,
1: that's, that's- that. Those are, and these are, it's quite important. I mean, the IMF um, and the World Bank to a degree are. There really, a lot of people are looking at the role that they can play in creating a sort of more just and verdant world,
2: right? Absolutely. I think you talked to Mark Carney very recently, and he had some really interesting thoughts about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did talk to Mark for the, our podcast. And, you know, he basically said that he, he thinks the IMF and the World Bank, sort of multilateral development banks, need to, quote, up. Their ambition and do more. And what he was particularly talking about is, you know, there are, in a sense, uh, if you will, they they can be the first absorbers for for capitalism, right? So they are the ones who could come in and make it safe. They, I don't want to say that they take the first loss, but the idea that they would be used to really draw out the extraordinary amount of private capital that's going to be needed. I think Mark himself has said something like a couple trillion dollars a year is going to be needed in infrastructure and other investments to get to net zero by 2050. And that's only going to be possible if you have uh, development banks like the IMF, the World Bank, involved in sort of, if you will, taking on taking the first hit and making it safe, if you will, for private capital.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, this is a view Larry Fink's expressed as before as well. So, I mean, I think there's a growing momentum. And this is something that the IMF IMF boss can tap into if she wants to really make a difference and leave a legacy that's sort of quite ambitious and big uh, in retrospect. I mean, the other thing that she could do is keep the IMF down, take it down further, the road of sort of just ditching these very, very, Washington consensus style prescriptions that, you know, it's been known for in the past. The IMF's already come some way from that, having learned from the Eurozone crisis and the like. But she could do a lot more on that basis and just, you know, not rely so much on telling, you know, all countries austerity is a good thing, regardless of the personal situations. And also the other really important thing that she can do is start a little bit of a change uh, in the way countries think about the organization. So it's not this sort of Europe, America dominated Mm. um, institution, as it still is, unfortunately, with U.S. the biggest shareholder. Europe always gets the um, head of the the IMF job. It's the ultimate
1: in sort of, you know, uh, know, backroom dealing, isn't it? I mean, you never really know how it all works out. It does not seem very transparent. You know, the U.S. is in their, what, what, a 16 percent Uh, economic or whatever stake and then but yet it always turns out some European pops in the top the Americans get the World Bank it's just it's just a little too. The European bloc has
2: a slight I mean the U.S. is the biggest single shareholder but you're absolutely right but the Europeans as a bloc probably have have a bigger thing which is why they always get the IMF and the Americans always get the world Bank. but it's a hangover from the Bretton Woods sort of you know rebuild the global economy after the war sort of uh, situation and the world's moved on a lot. The, this institution needs to get to grips with the rise of China as an economic power, the needs of developing countries which are larger, more you know important, but also have different needs. All of this is changing and she can start gearing the institution up to become a little more 21st century perhaps.
1: Now, let me just just turning to, before we close, the IMF also does some interesting economic research. And so what they did, it was a little bit overshadowed by the Kristalina affair, as it were. But what, what did they come out with in terms of their economic outlook for the world?
2: They're a little less positive than they were when they last updated their economic forecasts. We're still looking at a sort of decent level of global growth. Most things are fine. I mean, what you're seeing, however, is risks coming up. And the IMF's view is that inflation, higher inflation is transitory. But they are warning central banks to be on the lookout and not let this go away. They're also issuing some warnings about doing the right thing about debt, which has built up a lot after the pandemic. So this was perhaps a slightly more nuanced and cautious about the risks forecast than we saw when we were emerging from the pandemic and everything was going great, guns.
1: All right. Well, thank you for that, Swaha. Next year we can do this actually in
2: Washington, we hope. Absolutely.
0: Much excitement in the world of retail in Europe this week, uh, both at the old retail end of things in supermarkets, and then more recently at the newer front lines of e-commerce. Um, and Amy Donelan, our columnist, has been covering both these stories. Amy, good to chat to you. Let's start with the uh, let's start with the old retail, the old world retail. Um, this is happening in France. Uh, Carrefour, big supermarket chain, turns out that they had. Considered a merger with another supermarket in France, but that didn't deal didn't happen. Can you catch us up on what happened?
3: Yes. So there's high drama in French grocers at the moment, and it all seems to be centering around Carrefour for some reason. Um, so they're, you know, one of the biggest supermarkets. And what we what we learned at the weekend was that Auchan, um, which is a privately owned company, gr- privately owned grocer um had approached carrefour about a takeover and the price was 21 euros 50 a share but there was a bit of kind of the, it wasn't so attractive to carrefour and one of the reasons was because ocean is private so it's going to be a mixture of cash and sort of equity in ocean and the concern was because ocean is so big in kind of hypermarkets and things that would be considered sort of old school old world of of of, gro- of grocers um, that this was difficult to value for Carrefour. So they ended up rejecting it and saying, we're not interested. And Ocean said that they wouldn't go hostile. So it sort of ended this this um this situation. But this was obviously not the first time we've seen Carrefour being a target. Uh back in January, Canadian Couchard again came knocking to Carrefour, and they were told to, you know, basically go packing uh, by the French government. And one of the reasons was they they thought that there would be um, some problems with food sovereignty and supply chains if a foreign owner owned Carrefour. So it just basically, it doesn't look like there's many buyers that can really buy Carrefour because either it's a domestic buyer that there are problems with, or there's an international buyer uh, like couche which although didn't seem to have any job cut plans, which would have been a big issue for Ocean for and the French government, but equally they just didn't seem to want a foreign owner to own one of their big supermarkets.
0: Yeah, yeah, I see. So, so in one case, uh, the, the the buyer was a foreigner, and that was a problem. In the other case, potentially this would have been a would have, would have been a problem, sort of from a competition point of view. And I guess also, this being France, there would have been lots of people would have lost their jobs. I mean, so in that would have been a 17 billion dollar. sorry, 17 billion euro deal. The Ocean uh, uh, Carrefour type. Do, what's your sense, Amy? Is that is that deal completely dead? Because we've seen. A couple of other stories floating around about Auchan and I don't know. There's maybe some suggestion that this story isn't completely over.
3: Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be sort of an interesting, again, another interesting story rumbling in the background, which is that Oshan uh, was approached about a, a potential SPAC with Matthew Pigas, which has been he was he's been looking for a target in kind of organic food. Um matthew
0: Pigas is a is a French rainmaker who used to be at Lazard and is uh, uh, you know kind of a high profile sort of French deal guy basically
3: yes yes exactly and and ocean uh, has the the owner the owner the family owners of Ocean have said that they do not want to sell under any circumstances, but this could be a kind of interesting situation where they could sell maybe through a SPAC a stake in the business, list that, get some value, get some external value for for the company that could then be used to buy Carrefour. That would give some sort of comfort to Carrefour that they could understand, you know, their new owner how how it was valued and how they should think about that equity.
0: Yeah, well, it's also, I mean, you know, I mean, you you were writing recently about. Uh, um, the takeover battle for Morrison's in the UK, which ended up getting sold to private equity. I mean, it just seems like there's just a lot of interest from from private equity, from from uh, from banks, from from investment bankers in in the whole supermarket business. And um, feels like feels like a lot in play. But I guess if we look at Carrefour, so they've been jilted. They, they tried to do one deal, which got blocked by the government. But it's another this other deal seems not to be happening for now or maybe it comes back in some form but um, uh, you know i guess if you're careful, then then sort of where does that leave you what what else could they possibly do if anything
3: i mean there are other supermarkets in europe that are looking around for for targets and that may may happen and you know maybe the french government would be more open to a european buyer than than a canadian buyer that's possible um, but I think a more likely outcome... at least the
0: Canadians speak French, right?
3: <laughs> Very <laughs> true. So the Belgian supermarket we're looking for, basically. Um, but uh, no, I, I think the probably the more likely outcome is that we'll probably see Carrefour um, moving outside of France to really expand. And we've already seen a bit of that with um, the purchase of Grupo Big in in Latin America, and they are now the basically the biggest grocery provider in Brazil through that purchase. So I think we are already over 50% of their revenue is coming from outside of France, so we'll probably see more and more of that, which I think is sort of counterintuitive to maybe what the French government were hoping for uh, with this sort of draping the flag over Carrefour. It actually will end up that they just go externally because the French market is very slow growth. Um, It grows a lot slower than, let's say, Latin America. Uh, so it makes very little sense for for Carrefour to be really aggressively trying to gain market share in their home country, particularly given Amazon is aggressive there. Lidl and Aldi, the German discounters, are also kind of moving in. Uh, and you can see when you look at Kantar Research, you know the kind of market share who's gaining. Um, it does look like the big supermarkets are really losing in France at the moment.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, so watch the space. It sounds. It feels like the Carrefour story is uh, is not quite over yet. Um. Probably look for something else to happen there, and that's always Amy will be watching. Now, just briefly, uh, um, just at the other end of the sort of the, 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 the kind of modern, you know, forward-looking, whizzy end of commerce, e-commerce. We have this UK company, THG, previously known as the Hutt Group, which is a sort of, you know, a kind of bit of a, or was a bit of a bright star in the British firmament of, of kind of like web companies, companies that were pioneering in e-commerce selling beauty products and and vitamins and things like that but it's not going so well tell us briefly what uh, what's happened
3: yeah so i mean um thg uh as you said was known as the hud group um it's ran and owned by matthew molding which is this kind of outspoken kind of tech star um and Basically, over the past month, we've seen about 50% of the market share wiped off this company. And that all kind of started because basically Moulding talked about breaking up the company. So this is a company you probably know of it from maybe seeing on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, they make things like MyProtein and nutritional supplements. Um, and they do beauty brands They for influencers. They help them make Uh, different types of perfume. And they also have this business, uh, which is very small, but they see it as really the future, which is called Ingenuity. And that allows companies like Coca-Cola and Mandela's to sell directly to consumers. So they have an offering where they help you set up your website, they do cloud computing for you, they'll do payments, translation if you need it in different markets. Uh, And the whole idea is is this end-to-end product that a big, huge multinational can, can use, and there's nothing else out there that's like this. But investors have not been have not been keen on that, that idea of the breakup, because obviously the, the re- big revenue generators are the beauty, which will be sold off, uh, and the nutrition business, which could be listed. Um, so what you'd be left with is in, this ingenuity. And people didn't really understand how ingenuity works.
0: Yeah. And, and well, and THG had an investor day on Tuesday where people thought they might explain a bit more about how it works. Yes. Um, but they didn't. And so the share price fell 30% plus. I mean, just briefly, just to kind of show people what's going on here, there was this quite curious and sort of high profile deal that THG did earlier this year, where they basically SoftBank, they basically gave SoftBank an option to buy 20% of this this ingenuity business for $1.6 billion, even though that business didn't really exist as a separate entity yet. They were like, we're selling them the stake in this business, but we have to kind of like carve it out of the rest of our business. And so it was like this sort of weird, like sort of, you know, future deal where they were going to pay a hypothetical amount of money for a hypothetical stake in a hypothetical business. Yes. But still people got quite excited by that. Now you're basically saying you ran some numbers yesterday, basically saying, well, Actually, if you break the different, if you look at the different parts, this ingenuity business, the, the stock market is telling you this ingenuity business is worth, well, what did you end up, what was the number you ended up with?
3: Basically, almost nothing. Um, I mean, right. the, the, the interesting thing about that SoftBank option is it gave a value to this, as you say, this kind of business that doesn't exist yet. And that was about 4.5 4. billion pounds. Uh, for the whole of Ingenuity. Now, that is a lot more than what the current stock value of, of THG is now. I think it's about 3.5 billion after about a 36 percent fall yesterday after this investor day that, that you talk about. Um, mm. And so, it, exactly. It just looks like the the market, I mean, they they can see how beauty and nutrition are doing. They can see the revenue. Uh, they have some information on profitability. It's it's very difficult to see anything in ingenuity. And if anything, this presentation that they put together, which was pre-recorded, quite slick. Uh, every kind of few minutes, it was you know interrupted with visions of uh, you know tablets being filled and perfumes being made. Um, it kind of raised more questions than it answers. They had this quite elaborate slide which showed this 18 categories that they provide their customers. And it turned out that clients were only using a few of these and some in some cases they weren't charging clients at all for these. And I think that the concern then would be is if you're not doing end to end, if you're not offering this, this company like Unilever or Nestle an end to end offering, they can surely go to other competitors and try and get something cheaper so they could go to Salesforce or Oracle yeah. Uh, yeah. for various things. So I, I think that was kind of the reaction.
0: Yeah, well, there's um, there's definitely, that's, that's one we're going to be watching quite closely. And we will also, well, at least you will be keeping an eye on um, the, the uh, never dull world of French supermarkets. So, um, Amy, thank you very much. And um, uh, well, let's uh, stay in touch on this.
1: That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer Oliver Taslich in London and to you, dear listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast exchange on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you go to get your high-quality podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Bye-bye.